like you. God, we sing a new song to you. And we sing all the earth. God, we sing to the Lord. We bless your name. We declare your glory among the nations. We declare your marvelous works among all the peoples. For great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. Amen. This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew 5, 21 to 26. It can be found starting on page 810 in the Bible under your seat. It's Matthew 5, 21 to 26. You have heard it, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome. It's great to be with you. Well, we're continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you look just back one verse from where Betsy started reading, we find in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, a statement from Jesus that I think is really important for understanding the rest of Matthew 5, at least, if not the whole Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a bold statement, right? And it encapsulates, I believe, God's great and glorious plan for creating a new humanity who love him and obey him from the heart and live out that love visibly in community, in relationship with other people. A new humanity, a new society, we might think of it, that will be salt and light and a blessing to everyone around, to those outside of the kingdom, calling them in to the goodness and glory of God. And Jesus' statement is so bold here that we might be tempted to think that it points to some future reality that is ours now mostly by faith, something we have in our back pocket, like a, a voucher that we'll turn in when we get to heaven someday. Here's my voucher. We don't generally think of this as what Jesus expects of his followers, what he wants them to pursue and experience in this life. But of course, that's not what's going on here. This is not simply about some future reality. 
And Jesus makes that clear at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he warns of of certain consequences that come to those who reject his message, who don't respond rightly to it. And in the face of all that we encounter in the Sermon on the Mount, in particular this overarching idea of an exceeding or a greater righteousness, it seems helpful if not critical for us to remember that the Sermon on the Mount is good news. It's good news not only for the future, but it's good news for all of us and for all the world right now. The kingdom is coming in all its fullness, but it is here. It is here in us, God's people. It's manifested in us now. And it looks like the things Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we seek to understand and seek to apply the teaching of Jesus, we, we have to keep reminding ourselves that this is good news, not simply for us, not simply for Christians, but for the whole world. In high school, this goes back a few years, I was given a book by Josh McDowell called More Than a Carpenter. And in that book was a quote from a psychiatrist whose name I can't remember, but it's a quote that I never forgot. I went back and looked it up. Here's what he said. He said, if you take the sum total of all authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental health, if you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out the excess verbiage, If you were to take the whole of the meat and none of the parsley, and if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets, you would have an awkward and incomplete summation of the Sermon on the Mount. And it would suffer immeasurably through comparison For nearly 2,000 years, he goes on to say, the Christian world has been holding in its hand the complete answer to its restless and fruitless yearnings. Here rests the blueprint for successful human life. I don't think I would give modern psychology that much credit, honestly. I don't know if they're as close as he makes it sound, but I think the point is well made. This sermon, even as it challenges our assumptions and exposes some of our flawed thinking, it is really good news. It's news that we need to hear. It teaches us, as Mike highlighted last week, what it really means to be human, to be whole. And I think that's what the psychiatrist saw in it. You and I, we are men and women who have been created in the image of God. With the fall in the garden, that image was broken, it was marred, it was distorted. And now with the coming of Jesus Christ, with the coming of the kingdom, God through Jesus is restoring that image even now in us, his people. And so Jesus, to show us what this greater righteousness looks like as he moves on in the sermon gives us six comparisons that run through the end of chapter 5, comparisons between the external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and the internal 
outward-reaching, greater righteousness of the kingdom of God. And Jesus introduces each of these comparisons with some variant of this phrase. You've heard that it was said to those of old. And then he either quotes or paraphrases or, or patches together particular parts of the Old Testament law. And I think Mike said this last week, but he's not doing it to to negate the law or to expose the law as flawed or somehow way off the mark or even incomplete, though it was by itself incapable of changing the human heart. Jesus isn't saying what you've heard was wrong. What is wrong is that the teachers of the law failed to see behind the specific commands, the more demanding and more life-giving principles that should inform and govern the conduct of God's people. And as the true and authoritative interpreter of God's law, Jesus pushes us to consider the deeper realities that the commandments point to and the positive actions and attitudes that the negative commands commend to us. And we experience that very much in our passage here on murder and anger. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. Commandment number six, direct quote, Exodus twenty thirteen, And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Numbers 35, which covers in some detail how Israel was to deal with murder and murderers. This is the interpretation Jesus gives. It's not just the physical act of murder, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. I think it's fitting in unveiling this greater righteousness of the kingdom of heaven and the characteristics of the new humanity or the restored humanity that Jesus is bringing that he begins with anger and murder. And here's the first reason why I think it's important. You see, our initial glimpse of human life after the fall outside of the garden in Genesis chapter 4 begins with anger and murder. Two brothers, sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, they offer sacrifices to God, and Abel's sacrifice is accepted, and Cain's sacrifice is rejected. Now, there's a lot of speculation on why. One interesting take is that, that, that fits with what's going on here in the Sermon on the Mount is found in the apparent meanings of their names. Josephus and Augustine and others came to understand Cain's name to mean possessions and Abel's name to mean vapor or breath. And with that, they saw in Cain as the firstborn one who represents power, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness. Abel, meanwhile, whose birth is hardly mentioned, represents the weak, the vulnerable, the dependent. And Abel, having or being nothing, as his name implies, offered his sacrifice by faith, according to Hebrews 11, and God accepted it. 
Cain, who possessed much, offered his sacrifice with self-confidence and was surprised and frustrated that he was rejected. One Old Testament scholar draws an interesting parallel between this story in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, with the Pharisee and the tax collector and the parable Jesus told about those men. Cain is linked to the Pharisee, to those who trust in themselves that they are righteous and look down on others with contempt. And Abel is linked to the tax collector and those who have nothing to offer and so seek mercy from God. Maybe it's a stretch, but maybe not. Whatever's going on, Cain gets angry, right? And God warns him that sin is is crouching at the door. He warns him of the dangers of anger, and he encourages him to do the right thing. Of course, Cain doesn't listen. And in his anger, he lures Abel out into a field and kills him. We don't know exactly why he did it. We're not given specifics. Maybe he was jealous. Maybe he was embarrassed. Maybe he felt threatened. Who knows? But clearly the connection between anger and murder is made from the very earliest stories of human existence. It's part of our DNA and a major factor, right, in the history of mankind. Which brings us to a second reason why connecting anger to murder is fitting. It shows us that evil is not simply around us, but it is in us. It's part of our fallen human condition. Evil is not something we just do, but it's something we are. It comes from where? From our heart, from within. Now, there is a way to be angry that is not sin, but the anger in view here in the Sermon on the Mount exposes the fall's effect on humanity. From Cain's murder of Abel, we quickly learn in Genesis chapter 6 that the wickedness of man has spread and it was great on the earth and that every intention of mankind's heart was only evil continually. It is, as Jesus says in Matthew 15, for out of the heart from within come evil thoughts, murder, Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Now, you might not see yourself that way, as evil. I get it. I I don't see myself that way, partly because I'm prideful. Okay, I mean, that's just part of it. There's another part. I'm watching as God changes me, right? I mean, that's the promise of the new kingdom is that he's going to give us a new heart and that we're going to be different people. Mike said last week that Jesus creates a new humanity by giving us what the law could never give, a new heart. And he's doing that in all of us here. But when I do get angry... When I feel the emotions that Jesus speaks of here, it reminds me of a few things. First, that what God has started, he hasn't yet completed, right? That there is that future day coming when when all anger and all evil will be driven from me. 
It reminds me that his work is not complete, and it reminds me that the old me is still hanging on, that I still have this work to do of of putting on the new man and putting off the, the old. There are still remnants of Genesis 4, still remnants of Genesis 6 percolating inside of me. A couple weeks ago, I got angry at Tina over something stupid, which is generally what I get angry over. I don't know about you, but it's usually something stupid. I'm a little more level-headed if it's a big matter. And even as I was venting, as we like to say, my displeasure, I realized how stupid I was acting, but I was in it now, and I was going to finish. And she even asked me, why are you making such a big deal out of something so small? And I tried to persuade her, but it wasn't working. And as I continued in my irritation, I just couldn't let it go. I had to make my point, and I think I made it. Uh, it was a stupid point. It, all told, it wasn't a long deal. I, I didn't yell or scream, but something was inside of me was going on. It was five minutes. We ended up working through it, praying, moving on. Eventually, eventually, I asked her for forgiveness. A couple of days later, I read this quote from Dallas Willard. Anger indulged instead of simply waved off always has in it an element of self-righteousness and vanity. Find a person who has embraced anger and you will find a person with a wounded ego. Now, the funny thing is, I mentioned this quote to Tina and she goes, that's exactly what was going on inside of you. I'm like, I know I'm telling you that, you know, (laughs) you don't, you don't have to tell me. I started to feel angry about it. (laughs) Now, I realize that the occasion for my anger was that her harmless action had been received as a statement against me, against my competencies. She took care of something that I was supposed to take care of. She did it out of love, but I perceived it as like, see, I took care of it. Oh, man, that's a horrible thing, right? She actually did a good thing. I made it into a bad thing, blew up, got weird, self-defense, wounded ego, whatever. But in all of that, it seems so benign. It seems so innocent. But don't you hear the whispers of Cain, right? The whispers of Cain, this this evil that lurks within. I think we have to keep this in mind. The righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, understands that avoiding murder is not enough. In fact, for all of us, that's probably going to be pretty easy, right? Hopefully. It's not enough just to not commit murder. Evil needs to be purged from us. And that really takes shape here in a third reason why starting with anger and murder makes sense, as Jesus begins to unfold what a greater righteousness looks like. And it's found again in Genesis chapter 4. After Cain kills Abel, God comes to him and asks, Where is your brother? And Cain lies to God and he says, I don't know. And then he asks God a question. There's a reason this question is right at the beginning of the story, right? Right in Genesis 4. He says, am I my brother's keeper? 
Am I responsible for him? You expect me to keep track of him? Why are you asking me this question? Well, the law, the Mosaic law, would answer that question. Cain, are you Abel's keeper? With an emphatic, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. And it would be a yes that extended beyond simply one's siblings. Brothers spoke to the community solidarity that was outlined in the law and was highly esteemed by the Israelites. In Leviticus 19, well, the whole chapter is glorious. It really is. It's a, it's a surprise nugget in Leviticus for me. But in verse 17 and 18, we read, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, looking at our passage in Matthew 5, certainly something more than our typical view of anger is at play. I don't think Jesus is saying, look, when you get angry, it's the same as committing murder. He isn't saying that anyone who gets angry should be brought before the courts. Can you imagine the, the logjam that would create, right, if every act of anger needed to go before the magistrates? We'd have to hire thousands of judges. He isn't saying if you insult someone, which is somehow maybe a little greater than anger, you need to go to the Supreme Court. And if you call them a fool, well, we're just going to send you to hell. Now, something deeper is at play here. Anger is hatred and contempt for those God has called us to love. Anger is hatred and contempt for those God has called us to love, our brothers and our sisters. And we see that in the progression in our text. Anger insults you fool. I mean, Jesus could be doing that simply for emphasis, which preachers sometimes do. But I think a closer look may give us a deeper understanding of what's at play. The word raka that's translated here as insult, that seems kind of innocent enough, was used in Jesus' day to express contempt for someone. It was a way of saying, you're worthless. You, have, you add no value to my life. If you weren't around, everything would be absolutely fine. You're not worth the time of day. And the phrase, you fool, was a devastating wish to see someone burn in hell. It had a little more to it than we might think. One of my favorite TV shows is Shark Tank. I don't know if you've watched the show. Maybe you've seen it. On the show, cocky, rich, wealthy businessmen listen to pitches from entrepreneurs who are trying to get their money and their support, their expertise. And they're called sharks for a reason, right? They're, they're ruthless. They often want larger percentages of the business than people are willing to give. They're trying to make money for themselves. They're generally not motivated uh, by benevolence. And one shark, Kevin O'Leary, is particularly sharky, and he earned the sarcastic nickname Mr. Wonderful. 
because he's not. Now, it's TV, of course, so sensational sells, but there are two phrases that he often uses to display with great accuracy what I believe Jesus is talking about here. When he thinks someone has a product or a business that has, well, it's in a market that already has too much competition, or if he thinks it's just a stupid idea, he might say something like, I hope they crush you like the cockroach you are. That's something of what's going on here with Jesus, what he's saying, the kind of feelings that people think about one another. And when someone turns him down and says no to his offer, he says, you're dead to me. Go. I'm through with you. I don't need you. The Pharisees didn't murder, but from their position of power, they had a number of people that were dead to them. A number of people for whom they said, I hope you get crushed like the cockroach you are. That's why they were so frustrated with Jesus when he ate with publicans and sinners and tax collectors. What are you doing? These people aren't worth your time. No great teacher would hang out with these people. In the church, we might not think of anger as a major problem. Maybe not. But all over the world, it is spilling out. The language of the internet The language of politics is toxic right now. And it's easy for us to get sucked in. It's easy to think that people who don't agree with our position or appear to be a threat to our comfortable life or whatever it is, it's easy to start to think, these people are cockroaches. They're a menace to society. We need to to do away with them. They're dead to me. Life would be better if if those people didn't exist. It's very easy for anger to become hatred and hatred to become real murder. We think we're above it, but right? The world is filled with murder. The world is filled with hatred. In Myanmar right now, genocide is going on. We saw it in Rwanda 20 years ago. How does that happen? It's evil. It's wicked. It's contempt that becomes deportation, that becomes slavery, that becomes abuse. Going back to Genesis again, chapter 9, we see that murder is such a terrible thing because man was created in the image of God. And anger is equally terrible because it dehumanizes people made in that image. It seeks to strip them of their dignity and their worth. Marred as they may be, they are still made in the image of God. And Jesus' comments here on anger are profound. Look, he's not just talking about anger between a husband and wife like I discussed earlier. Remember, he's coming to establish a whole new kingdom. A kingdom of people who live and act differently, who who abide by different rules in the world around them. He's laying out a grand new way of life where every single life matters. 
Am I my brother's keeper? Oh, you bet. I am my brother's keeper. Yes. And the anti-anger that Jesus promotes envisions a community that treats those deemed as the least of these with respect and honor and dignity. There's a lot going on right now, a lot of debate about immigration, for instance, and DACA. I don't know all the arguments. I don't understand it all. And I may be taking a risk in speaking on politics right now. But it struck me this week that in seeking to protect our way of life, in seeking to guard what we have, we may be treating people made in God's image with contempt or worse. It's not beyond the possibility that some who were turned away may actually die. And this brings me back to Leviticus 19, where the law lays out this wonderful program of living a life together, where the farmer doesn't gather from the edges of his field so that the poor can glean from it, where the vineyard owner, when he drops a grape, he doesn't pick it up, but he he leaves it there for the poor. This community that God envisioned for the Israelites, where the poor and the helpless are taken care of, it commands loving your neighbor as yourself. It's beautiful. And then later on we read this, Leviticus 19.35. And when a foreigner sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. Listen to this. And you shall treat him as one of your own. Meaning, everything he just said about your brother, the Israelite, this way of doing life together that treats everyone with dignity and worth and value as those made in the image of God, that applies to the stranger dwelling in your midst. You shall treat him as one of your own, and you shall love him as yourself. Am I my brother's keeper? Oh, yeah. Who is my brother? Everyone who bears the image of God, meaning everyone. So how are we to respond? Well, Jesus tells us, reconcile quickly. Pursue peace and love no matter what the cost is. Don't allow anger and hate to grow. Now, in both illustrations that we have here in Matthew 5, we're the one at fault, it would seem. And there's a sense of urgency in both of the examples. In the first one, someone is at the temple, ready to make an offering, and Jesus says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, so imagine you've, you've been up in Galilee, this is where he was speaking this sermon, and you've traveled three days with an animal that you're going to sacrifice, you're going to make a sacrifice to God. You traveled three days, you get there right as you're, you're, you're kind of in the queue, you're ready to have your moment, and then you're like, shoot, I just remembered this. Jesus says, tie up your animal and go back three days 
and make things right, and then travel three days back, make the sacrifice, and then go back. It's a lot of traveling. It's a lot to do, right? But this reflects the the Old Testament idea that to obey is better than sacrifice. Or as Hosea 6, 6 says, Behold, I would rather have mercy than sacrifice. The same goes with the courtroom. You're being sued by someone. Settle out of court, Jesus says. Don't let it go to trial. Have any of you ever been to court? I think court's the perfect place to develop hatred, right? I mean, it just seems like it's, it's just there. I remember my dad, he felt like he had to go to court because someone sued him. He was an auto mechanic and someone sued him for some work and wanted him to pay them $600. My dad said, no, I'm, I'm not in the wrong here. I'm going to go to this court. And he came back struggling with bitterness. He lost, for one thing, so that always makes you feel a little, but it it, it created this moment of anger for my dad that he had to to deal with. When you go to court, he says, settle out of court. Don't let it get there. Now, some people, in seeking to be right, in seeking to find justice, exhaust not only their finances right, but become embittered, angry people. Jesus is telling us, look, reconciliation is better than being right. Reconciliation is better than being right. Settle out of court. Blessed are the peacemakers. And these examples are not meant to say, you can never take someone to court or you're an evil person. Or that you literally say, I'm in the middle of preaching and all of a sudden it's like, shoot, I just had this thought pass through my brain and my... I sinned against my brother. I'll be back. He lives in Indiana. You know, it's not like that, right? I mean, I don't think he's saying, take this literally. I think what he's saying is, there's an urgency that we need to have about pursuing peace. An urgency that we need to have concerning anger in our hearts. Just imagine a kingdom, right? A community where people are eager to love, quick to forgive, no matter what the cost is to them personally. Where hatred and contempt have no place. Not in a legalistic condemning way, but in the sense that we realize that they don't build up. They don't bring life. They don't reflect God. Who sends the rain, as Jesus will say at the end of Matthew 5, on the just and the unjust. At the end of chapter 5, when Jesus says, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, he's referencing our relationship with one another. That we should have God's heart for our enemies, for our brothers, for those made in his image. Imagine a community where love for God is lived out by showing love for those created in his image. It's it's incredible. It's the spirit of the law that we're trying to reflect, not the letter. We're not concerned with figuring out 
how to do it exactly or precisely as much as how to become it, how to be this. This is the way of the kingdom. Does our heart long for the kingdom? Does it long for reconciliation? Does it long for love? Does it long to see the brokenhearted, the weak, lifted up? Does it long to see those despised by our culture and our society treated with dignity and love? Are we willing to set aside the rituals of religion in order to pursue genuine acts of love for our brother? Are we willing to become our brother's keeper? And are we willing to let that definition of brother expand and grow? If we are, then we have exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It doesn't mean we're perfect. But if that's our goal and our aim, then we have exceeded it. It's beautiful. And we get there. We become this because it's what Jesus is doing in the world. I keep thinking about that. He didn't come in order to fail, right? His kingdom is coming. We get his righteousness as a gift, and we become righteous like him because he is giving people new hearts. We are a new humanity. We are a new society, and God is saying, Act like it. Just try it. I think Mike said something like last week that we we begin to see that we have a new heart as we begin to do the things God has asked us to do. This is all God's doing. And we become like Jesus in fellowship with him. There's a great verse. It's in Acts 4 where Peter and John are dragged in before the Sanhedrin council of some sort. And they're talking with them, and at one point, one of the guys realized that these men had been with Jesus. There was something about being with Jesus that was transformative. We're changed by abiding in Christ, by being with him, by living out the things that he's called us to by faith. We can forgive We really can. We can love the unlovable. We can seek peace and reconciliation. We can even, as Jesus is going to ask us, love our enemies and do them good. Because God in Christ has forgiven us. Because God through Christ has welcomed us. People who didn't deserve mercy or grace. Who have been given that mercy and grace. We love him because he first loved us. And that love melts our heart of stone and gives us a a heart of flesh that now beats for him. Beautiful. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move in us now Lord, we ask that you would give us faith to believe that this is what you're doing on the earth.
to believe that you have called us into this glorious community, that you have called us to be our brother's keeper, to love those who have been created in your image. Lord, would you energize us for this task? Would you even today begin to change our way of thinking? Begin to drive out the angry, hateful thoughts that we have and replace them with love and peace. Lord, give us a heart for the lost. Give us a heart for our enemies. Give us a heart to see your kingdom 